This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Ruman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Burned by Books. Let's start the show. There are two kinds of readers in the world, those who seek distraction from the real, from their literature, and those who seek submersion in shades of their reality even when reality feels unmoored and desperate. Celeste Ng's new novel, Our Missing Hearts, the follow-up to her galactic bestseller, Little Fires Everywhere, aligns both types of people. Set in an all-too-familiar parallel United States, where an economic crisis, perhaps brought on by inflation, set in motion a powerful xenophobia first toward China and later all Asian-appearing peoples. By driving fear and division, the government passes what are called the Pact Laws, supposedly enacted to protect and preserve American culture. The result is a dystopian surveillance society, where citizens are encouraged to report their neighbors, where books are banned, and where movement and speech are severely restricted in the name of safety and security. In this almost present world, a young boy named Bird has grown up without his mother, who disappears from his life when he is very young. Living in Cambridge, Massachusetts, with his seemingly conformist white father, Bird follows a trail of signs leading him to seek out his Chinese-American mother, whose poetry has become a rallying cry for those who stand against the nationalistic, xenophobic state. Asking profound questions of our own moment, Our Missing Hearts contains multitudes, layers of history rewritten from time immemorial about the ways in which we demean, scapegoat, and ghettoize marginalized people as a means of soothing fears about our own inhumanity. 
in Celeste's hands, the story becomes new and pressing, a thriller that dramatizes our own preoccupations, even as it reveals the poetry at the root of existence, even in the darkest of times. It is rare for a dystopian novel to illuminate hopefulness and the promise of a different future, but with prose that is searching, clear-eyed, and beautiful, our missing hearts makes room for a new language of possibility. Celeste Ng is the author of two previous novels, Everything I Never Told You and Little Fires Everywhere, the latter of which, which was made into an acclaimed TV series starring Reese Witherspoon and Carrie Washington. She lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Welcome to the show, Celeste. Chris, thank you so much for having me. It is great to have you here. I'd love to start by asking, firstly, how you decided you wanted to write a dystopia. And secondly, do you even consider this dystopian? Or have you played a sleight of hand and served us a shade of our present under the guise of dystopia? Yeah, I think that second question is one we should definitely talk about. The answer to the first question about how I decided to write a dystopia is that at the beginning, I, I didn't intend to write one. I started off with the mother-son story, the story of this creative mother, Margaret, and her son who didn't fully understand what she was doing, why it was so important to her, and even kind of saw this creative work as a rival for him. And I thought that it was going to be a fairly realistic story. And this was in about October of 2016. And immediately thereafter, we had the US presidential election. We saw the rise of the far right. We saw a lot of the, the sort of um, troubles that had been brewing under the surface of society coming right up to the forefront. Mm. And as the world outside the page started to feel more and more like a dystopia, it started to feel strange to pretend like those things weren't happening in the world of the book. And so I decided to think, well, let me imagine a world in which all of these kinds of things have not only happened, but have become the norm. And I imagined something that was essentially like our real world, but sort of with the volume turned up a little bit, uh, just our world as it might be, um, just one parallel track over. And I think it's a good question about whether it is really dystopian or not, because a lot of the things that I imagine were going on have happened in the past. Some of them are still happening now. And some of them, for example, the movement to ban books from schools and libraries, uh, it's, it's going on right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I love the way you describe it as the present with the volume turned up, because that's certainly how I how I experienced it as a as a kind of clarion call through a kind of uh, intensification of our current state. Margaret Atwood sort of famously said about writing The Handmaid's Tale that she didn't want to put anything in the book that didn't have a precedent in some real law or some event. And I kind of tried to take that as my guideline too that that everything in there has a root in something that really happened in the U.S. or elsewhere. Mm, yes. Yeah, that was, I, I mean, I won't say fun because they're not fun things, but it was part of the puzzle box of the novel to sort of mm -hmm. uncover the things that either were going on right now or were very much a part of our history. Bird and Margaret live in the U.S. under a surveillance state. The economic crisis, as it's known, brings out intense xenophobia and in both state surveillance and paranoid neighborhood surveillance. 
you clearly draw on a rich tradition of surveillance states with comparisons to the Stasi in East Germany, Orwell's 1984, and even contemporary China. But there's something profoundly American about the version you've created, a mix of what we have already started to experience and what could come. Could you talk about your inspirations for this particular world of surveillance? Sure. I started, of course, as you said, by looking at history. There's there's no shortage of surveillance states and times in which um, the government was trying to keep tabs on what its citizens were doing. So I looked, uh, as you said, at examples from you know East Germany or you know what happened under Stalin, for example. Lots of things that were happening uh, in World War II, both in Germany and in neighboring countries. But I also looked at examples of the ways that the United States has tried to keep tabs on what its citizens were saying and maybe even limit that, looking back at um, some of the laws that were passed around World War I, for example, um, about sedition and what was allowed to go through the mail and, and the Civil War era. Um, there's, there's so many examples of that that it was frighteningly easy to imagine. But I also wanted to imagine what it would be like if it wasn't just the state per se, not just the government, if it was really, you know, your neighbors, if this was sort of a citizen-led uh, kind of movement. I think a lot about the neighborhood watch signs that you see up in certain kinds of neighborhoods and the sense that they give that everybody is kind of watching you and that if mm. you put a foot out of line, you might have just ordinary neighbors and citizens calling you in. And there's something that feels even more terrifying about that. Um, there's a new Ken Burns documentary about the Holocaust. And one of the things that's really striking about the, the witness testimonies was people remembering that it was their neighbors who had turned them in and who had turned on them seemingly overnight. Mm. And there's something about not being able to trust people that feels really isolating and destabilizing. And that felt like what these characters might be experiencing. Yes, I find that utterly terrifying. Um, surveillance in the U.S. has often been a means of controlling the movements of people of color, mm -hmm. fugitive slave laws and the ghettoization of indigenous peoples, Japanese internment camps have led to ring cams and cell phones that track our every move. In our missing hearts, anti-China hate is provoked by the government as a scapegoat for the economic crisis, leading to the near constant surveillance of everyone who appears East Asian. What's the relationship you wanted to explore between economic instability and the surveillance of people of color, but very specifically Asian Americans? Yeah, one thing that I've been seeing a lot more of in recent years is a rise of anti-Chinese rhetoric in particular. Now, I, I come from Ohio, but um, because my parents are immigrants, they came from Hong Kong, and because I'm a Chinese American, that's how I identify, I've had the experience my whole life of people looking at my face and assuming that I am not from here or that mm -hmm. I don't belong in some way. And so it's quite frightening to me to hear anti-China rhetoric in particular. And there have been plenty of politicians that have you know, pointed their fingers at China as being the next big enemy. Um, you know, the ones who are taking our jobs, that's a you know familiar refrain that we've heard over decades. And I think there is a link there between this idea of economic concerns and looking for someone to blame for that, mm -hmm. looking for the people who are taking what's ours. Um, 
I'm thinking back to the 70s and 80s when there was a huge wave of anti-Asian sentiment. And a lot of that had to do with the decline of the auto industry and the perception that Japan was taking our jobs. Yeah. Um, and, and so for me, those ideas of, you know, who we, who we describe as foreign or other, depending on how our, our economic systems are doing, that feels very real. Yeah, I remember so clearly the anti-Japanese sentiments mm -hmm. of the the eighties and this idea that they were going to own all of our country and that our culture would crumble under the, you know, the the order and mm -hmm. um, you know, and like passionless Japanese boss. Yeah. And There's... and it seems so similar. Yeah, there there was actually a really gross, for lack of a better word, ad that came out a few years ago in which there's a, an, a, a Chinese male speaker and then there's an audience of Chinese people and it's all in Mandarin and there's subtitles. And this this, you know, person who's speaking in the ad is talking about how basically, um, you know, Americans weren't doing well and so on. And then it ends with and that's you know, that's how we came to own them. And the mm. whole audience laughs. And this ad got a lot of attention, both because I think the racism in it was so blatant, but because it also really touched on a lot of the talking points that many people, especially on the right, but not solely on the right, were starting to advocate about China is going to, as you say, it's going to own us. Mm. And that sense in which, you know, there's a fear of of invasion in a sense, right? There's a fear of, of contamination. I mean, there's a lot of history about, you know, the, 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 the concerns that people project onto others, all of that is tied up in there. You have some moments that feel so frighteningly of the present with this, including a, a senator who uh, makes a career out of spewing anti-Chinese propaganda and then is seemingly attacked by someone who appears East Asian. And I just couldn't help but think that so many Republicans and Democrats are starting to make their careers off of anti-China anti language. And so I wonder when you when you crafted that scene? Were you feeling like you were just ripping it straight from newspaper headlines? I did in a way. I I mean, I imagined that scene and then I realized that's happening now, right? In a way, it wasn't even something that I had imagined. It was something that I was starting to see. I mean, so in my you know home state of Ohio, one of, well, multiple candidates for office there are sort of using China as a talking point and they're kind of creating this political boogeyman. And it is, you know, it's something that is so much out there in the atmosphere that I wrote the scene. And then as I would read the news, I would bookmark articles for myself where it seemed to be happening in the news, you know, just almost to prove to myself, like, this wasn't totally made up. This wasn't beyond the pale of what people might actually be doing. I mean, I felt like it could be Ted Cruz in a second or or J.D. Vance in the Ohio uh, example. At the center of our missing hearts is the question of what a parent should sacrifice for their child, particularly in a totalitarian society. It comes in two different forms here, the parent who conforms in order to protect their child and the parent who rebels in order to try and make a different world. Can you talk about how this came to be in many ways the heart of your story? 
Yeah, for me, as I said, the story always arose out of this sort of family relationship, the mother and son, as I mentioned, but also the father and the son, um, because I think that the three of them are, are really sort of the core of the book. And those impulses, I think, are impulses that I feel myself as a parent who's trying to raise a child in this world and a child who's multiracial. You know, there's a part of me that wants to protect him and to not let him know that there are people in the world who will look at him differently because of what his face looks like or because of what his family background is. Um, it's the sort of fantasy part of me that thinks that I can keep him safe if he just doesn't know about what is going on in the world. But then there's another part of me that feels like he needs to know this. He needs to be aware of what there is and he needs to sort of be ready and prepared for it. And in a way, those two impulses came out in the novel as the two impulses of the two parents, the way that I imagined they might react based on their own experiences. You know, um, Bird's father is a white American man and it was easy for me to imagine that because he had not experienced this, he might think it was possible to kind of shut those parts of the world out. He might think it's possible to fly below the radar, so to speak. And for Bird's mother, who is a Chinese-American woman, she might have the idea, I thought, that it had never been possible for her to hide. And so she was going to have to prepare her son for this. And, and the push and pull between those two things is something that I very much feel. I've... I, I loved the fact that for Bird, ultimately, he sees these both as profound forms of love, even if he ultimately might find one more more powerful than the other. He sees that what his father is doing is an attempt to kind of sacrifice something profound for him. Yeah, I, I think that Bird being right around the age of adolescence, right around the time where you're starting to kind of peer into an adult world and adult perspective. For me, that was the time where you start to see your parents maybe in a way that was different from how you had before. You start to understand some of their motivations, at least. Um, for me, that's a process that's still ongoing. But <laughs> I I hope that, you know, he would start to recognize that, you know, what seems like controllingness from a parent might be a form of love, maybe not expressed in the most positive way in some cases, but that he would start to develop that kind of empathy and that kind of larger perspective that we always sort of hope our children will have about us once they're grown. Mm hmm. There's so much to say about the language in this novel, both your engrossing style, which vacillates between unquoted dialogue and gorgeous poetic reflections on culture, history, and society, but also your character's obsession with how language works. There's a moment in which Margaret describes falling in love with Ethan, her husband, over a shared love of language, but with very different understandings of what that language is and does. Ethan sees language as containing history and Margaret as containing possibility. Where do you fall in imagining the power of language? <laughs> it sounds like cheating, but I, I really feel both of those again. And, and those, again, are impulses that both come from me. I'm a word nerd myself. I had a fantastic Latin teacher in seventh and eighth grade who taught us Latin by looking at English words and finding the roots of them and then showing us the ways that those words still carried stories that tied them back to their origins and how it related them to other words that maybe didn't seem related. And that was such a profound experience that I think I've carried that love of language through to now, where, of course, I use words for their possibilities. I use them 
like building blocks to try and convey thoughts of my own. And I think they are both. I think part of the reason they have such possibility is that they carry such nuance with them. They carry all of the insinuations and suggestions and histories that come along with them. I mean, they are metaphors in and of themselves. And so I think if they didn't have that, we wouldn't be able to use them with, you know, to create metaphors of our own now. I love that moment, or there's two moments that I really, really love in the book. And one is that moment I was describing, especially when uh, the etymology of poetry is pile up, which, mm -hmm. I, which I didn't know and I absolutely love. But also when, when Bird's father is teaching him how the radicals in Chinese characters work and show a history and a development of meaning by joining together things. And I felt like... Um, Chinese uh, ideographs, ideograms, were especially important to thinking about the kind of mystery of the of history and potential in language. Yeah, I grew up uh, not speaking Cantonese, which is my family's language, and I've, I'm trying to remedy that as an adult. Um, I took some Mandarin in college, and now I'm trying to learn Cantonese, and it is, it's going to be a lifelong um, practice, I think, for me. It's really, really complicated. <laughs> it's not so easy. <laughs> it, is, it is not, and I, I wish I had learned it as a child, but you know, I think part of the reason that I love it now is that I have to work at it, and part of the way that I'm learning the language is, in fact, to kind of teach myself the stories that, as you point out, are embedded in the characters. Um, you know, you can learn Chinese by sort of straight memorization, but there is a story inside there. All the characters, for, for those who maybe don't know much about Chinese, are, are made up of sort of um, like smaller pictures within them. And they're called radicals, which makes a lot of sense if we think about it in the in the Latin way of it being a root of the character. So if you look at the radicals, you can maybe start to understand why the characters were put together the way they, they are. And so part of Ethan explaining the characters to Bird comes from me trying to understand the characters mm -hmm. that I'm learning. But I think there's a beautiful symmetry between the way that the Chinese characters are put together and again, carry these layers of meaning based on the the, the pictures essentially that are put in them and the way that words in English and other you know languages that come from from Latin carry with them those same sort of stories but just in a slightly different form rather than it being a drawn form it is it's it's a, a, a you know in the Roman alphabet but I love seeing that languages work like that no matter how they're written or where they develop there's something beautiful in thinking that that's a human thing Mm. rather than just a cultural thing. Yeah, that comes across so so beautifully in, in the book. Part and parcel of a, con a control society like the one you depict is the limitation of language in the form of controlling the kinds of languages that can be spoken, but also which books can be owned and read. You've already talked talked about how book banning is a very real part of our life today. Um, and you wonderfully make librarians into revolutionaries, the holders of some forbidden knowledge. Why is the U.S. of your novel and our own United States so afraid of books? And what about our contemporary moment do you think makes this an era of book bans? Mm. This is a good question and a big one. 
I think that part of our fear about books is that we understand the power that they have. And I think they have that power because they carry a story with them. I think that's, that's the way that we communicate with each other. That's the way that we make meaning out of life is essentially by making a story out of it. And what I mean by story is not necessarily, you know, once upon a time to the end, but a cause and effect, like this thing happened and it made these other things happen in a, in a way that's saying to us, we can learn from the past and we can maybe predict the future. Um, and in, in a time where we don't learn a history, I'm thinking, for example, of recent news stories in which um, bills were proposed in Texas to replace the word slavery with something like uh, involuntary migration or oh something, you, <laughs> you, you know, it's, it, it seems like a of farce, right? You're like, this has to be a parody. And yet they seem to sincerely mean that. Um, but, you know, there's countless other examples in which I think if you try to erase that story, what you're trying to do is you are trying to erase that entire history. You're trying to erase the meaning that comes with that history. And you're trying to erase the connections that come there that say, you know, because the United States was built with the labor of enslaved people, all of these current problems have their roots in that. And there's a sense that if you can just erase that, you can break that link. Maybe we won't have to deal with those problems. Hmm. And, you know, right now I look at the, the book bans and I look at the, you know, the historical examples that I've, I looked at writing the book of other times that books were banned and language was constrained. And in some ways it is an attempt to, deflect guilt and to deflect responsibility and to remove the entire part of the history that feels problematic from knowledge. Almost like if we don't talk about it, we'll never have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what I see happening here. I kind of see the sense that people would rather ignore that part of the past than face it and learn from it and try to avoid it again. Um, it, it's, I don't know that that's ever worked for anyone, but it does feel like a very human thing of like, well, let's just sweep that under the carpet. Yeah, the ostrich um, version of learning your history. Yes. Where you just stick your head in the ground and, or like put your fingers in your ears and say, la, 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 it, it never happened. This has never gone well for, for anyone. And I wonder why we're so reluctant to learn from that history of it not having gone well. Yeah. I, I wonder if in some ways it's because in the past, the history of removing those things has also you know, we, we try to forget so thoroughly that we forget that it hasn't worked in the past, right? It's, <laughs> you know, it, it does feel like this sort of endless cycle. I'm, I'm hopeful that we will eventually learn something from it. Um, but time will tell, I guess. I guess. I want to have your hopefulness. <laughs> By having Margaret's poetry become unintentionally a rallying cry to protesters against the state, you broach an age-old discussion about the politics of literature. Do you believe that all literature by its nature is political? And is there an onus on writers to speak to their political moment? This is a big question, too. I think that any kind of creative work that you do is going to be political by nature, simply because it's always going to be influenced by the era that you're in. Uh, I remember when I was an undergraduate, 
I was I was taught something that I learned was called new criticism, which I think at that point was maybe 20 years out of date. Um, <laughs> but where you were supposed to look at any piece of literature, a poem, a book, whatever it was, and pretend that it was written in a vacuum and pretend that you knew absolutely nothing about who wrote it, when it was written, anything. And they were like, just just look at the words on the page and do a close reading. And I really struggled with this because I don't think that anything is written in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you can look at anything and pretend that you that who wrote it when it was written is not part of the piece of art. It, it's strange to me to pretend that the the words on the page are completely divorced from a time period because words are going to be used differently at different times. Um, and so I think that any piece of of creative work that you make is always going to be influenced by the time you're in, whether you mean it to be or not. And so in that sense, acknowledging the context that informed the work feels to me like a way of understanding more of the work. It's not limiting it. It's in a way it's adding to it and it's adding a way of understanding it that might add new layers. So to the second part of the question, do artists have a responsibility to do that? I think they're doing it automatically. I think that if they're writing about the things that matter to them and the things that they see in the world, which is not every artist's goal, but is, I think, true for many of them, I think that that's going to speak as a political work. So maybe rather than saying they have an obligation to to do that, you know, to be some kind of spokesperson for their time, maybe what I'd say is they have, they should be aware that what they're doing is influenced by their time and use that as as part of what they're doing. That's so nicely said. There's an incredible folk tale embedded in the center of the novel in which an outcast boy is forced to spend the night in a haunted cabin and is defended from a monster by the cats he draws on the walls of the cabin. What was your inspiration for this tale and how does it resonate for you with the themes of the novel? So this is a real folk tale. Uh, it's a Japanese folk tale, and it was popularized in English um, by the writer Lafcadio Hearn um, back in, I think, just just before the turn of the 20th century. And it's been made into numerous picture books since then and included in other anthologies. And I remembered encountering it when I was a child. I remembered being sort of captivated by this story uh, that, to me at the time, I think read as an adventure story. And when I started writing this novel, it spoke to me differently. It spoke to me as a story about the power of art, about the ways that um, your work might take on a life, quite literally speaking, differently from what you had expected. But one interesting thing happened as I started to write. I was trying to find the version of the story that I remembered from my childhood, uh, and I I asked my sister, do you remember this story? And she said, uh, kind of, I don't, I don't really remember it that well. So I don't think we owned it. I think you must've gotten it at the library. And I asked my mother, you know, do you remember this story? And she said, I have no clue what you're talking about. <laughs> so I, I realized that I, I, you know, what had been this sort of um, seminal story for me was, was not one that I had been told at bedtime because my mother didn't remember it. I went looking for the copy of the picture book that I remembered, you know, based on certain illustrations in my mind. I was ordering used copies of them, you know, online, trying to find the one I remembered. And I found many different versions and they're all slightly different and all the art is different. And none of them are the story that I remember exactly. 
Mm-hmm. They're all a little bit different. And that 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 kind of resonated with me, this idea that the story shifts depending on who's telling it. And it shifts depending on where you are in your life at remembering it. You know, that I remembered it first as an adventure story about a boy out as a, on his own, which made sense for me with this young boy going out into the world. And later, as an adult, I remembered it as a sort of a metaphor for what art can be. And I decided to incorporate that idea into the book, that stories are going to mean different things to different people, depending on where they are, depending on the circumstances they're in, and they might change over time. And that's part of the power of the story, too. Yes, and and that idea of imbuing stories with the power to defend, the power to fight back against seen and unseen monsters just sort of spreads out all through the novel. Mm-hmm. There, there's the. It, it's powerful to me that in this story, I don't think it gives too much away. The the cats that the boy draws do the fighting for him while he is locked. He's locked himself into a cabinet and he's hiding because he knows that if he comes out, he'll be devoured. And so, in a sense, the battle happens off screen for him, and he's not. Therefore, he's not participating in it actively. And that spoke to me, um, it seemed to me to resonate with the way that as a writer, your, your books go out into the world and they live lives and they encounter people and they do things and you're not there for that, right? Mm -hmm. They're having these interactions with readers. Readers are making meaning from the books that you have and you're not in that equation. And that feels right to me. And that again, spoke to so many parts of this story. It speaks to Again, without spoiling too much, it speaks to what happens to Bird's mother, Margaret, and how her poetry goes out into the world and kind of takes on a life of its own. And it speaks to some actions that she takes later on in which she's trying to use the power of stories to to fight a battle, so to speak, um, that she maybe isn't physically present for, but that she's sending stories out into the world for. And it speaks to Bird as well and sort of his changing relationship to stories. And so it, it, the story of this this boy who, who painted cats became kind of this touchstone for so many parts of, of what the story of Our Missing Hearts was. I love what you say about sending stories out to to do battle for us. I think that's such a wonderful vision of literature at its best. Before I let you go, I'm hoping that you might be willing to share a couple of reading recommendations with us. Sure, I would love to. Um, a book that I just finished recently and that I can't stop thinking about or recommending to people is A Hell of a Book by Jason Mott. Um, won the National Book Award pretty recently. And it is just one of the smartest books that I've read. It talks a lot about what it is like to be a black man in America and about the state of race in the country. But it's also really funny and it's really (laughs) engaging. I mean, I was laughing out loud and I don't laugh a lot when I read books. And I laughed so much and read so many bits of it to my husband that as soon as I was finished, he took it and started reading it and then immediately began reading his favorite parts of it to me. But it's also a book that made me think a lot about the power of books and writing and about sort of everything about race in America and about what life in America was like. I just, I can't recommend it highly enough. So that's, that's my first and foremost recommendation. I also really loved a book called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. Uh, It's a story of two childhood friends who reconnect when they get older and they start developing video games together. And I'll say up front that I love video games, but uh, you don't need to know anything about video games to enjoy the book or to understand anything about it. 
because it's really a story of love between friends and how that waxes and wanes over time, how sometimes they're close and they lean on each other and sometimes they grow farther apart and how their relationship with each other shifts as they create work together. It's think It was a fantastic read as well and one that I'm still thinking about. And then one, can I do one more? Of course. Yeah, please. Um, there's a great book called Woman of Light by Kali Fajardo Anstein. It's it's sort of this sweeping historical saga, but it feels so contemporary. And I think this goes to what we were talking about earlier about history sort of repeating itself. It takes place in 1930s Denver, uh, and it focuses on a, a multiracial family. There's some indigenous heritage, there's some Chicano heritage. There's a brother and sister at the heart of the story. The sister is a tea leaf reader. And the brother is a snake handler. But they start to sort of discover and carry on the stories that have been passed down to them from their ancestors, even as they're dealing with everything that's happening in 1930s Denver, um, a KKK riot, for example, the shifting demographics of the city, and then just trying to live their lives. So it's it reminded me of Willa Cather in the best possible mm. way, but um, giving voice to a lot of voices that I hadn't heard before. And so it's it's just a wonderful, wonderful read. And I recommend that very highly. That sounds amazing. And I, I love that you listed Hell of a Book and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, which are, are two books that I think are are maybe some of the best of the, the last decade. I think each in their own way, and they're quite different. They are extraordinary character portraits, but also visions of the world right now. Yes, absolutely. I mean, these two books I'm going to be thinking about for a long time, I know, and I, I, I think they're going to become classics, honestly. But as you say, I think they are amazing books just purely on an enjoyment, you know, readerly level. And yet, the more you read them and the more time you spend with these characters, sort of the bigger the world becomes and the mm -hmm. more things that I feel like those books are, are speaking to. And for me, that's always sort of the best kind of literature, books that feel like they open up the more you read them. And is there anything funnier than that opening scene of the character from Hell of a Book running naked through oh, the hallway he's in the of elevator. the hotel? Yeah. It's hilarious. <laughs> and he, you know, he meets an old lady in the elevator who is not phased by anything, and they discuss grooming techniques. And it's, it's, you know, um, I don't know how he manages to hit both ends of the keyboard at the same time. That he's talking about deeply serious issues, um, both you know, sort of personal psychological issues, and also larger societal issues and yet it manages to be just genuinely funny i i so agree and celeste it was an absolute pleasure to get to talk with you and i cannot wait for my listeners to run out and get our missing hearts i just think it is a truly wonderful novel well thank you so much because it was really a joy to talk with you and and i always here for nerding out about books so thank you so much <laughs> for having me on Well, that's all from me for now. My enormous thanks to Celeste Ng, whose Our Missing Hearts was just selected to be Reese Witherspoon's Book of the Month for her book club. Whoever they have reading for Reese is a genius, and they certainly got this pick right. You'll find a link to purchase Our Missing Hearts and all of Celeste's wonderful recommendations at our website, burnedbybooks.com. Later this week, I'll welcome a writer whose transgressive, powerful feminist fictions have been stamping the literary culture with their imprint for years, the amazing A.M. Holmes.
Until then, this has been Burned by Books. <laughs>